Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Our scripture reading for today is from Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now, that very day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, What are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. A man who, with his powerful deeds and words, proved to be a prophet before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Not only this, but it is now the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some women of of our group amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and said they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found him, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So he said to them, You foolish people, How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. So they approached the village where they were going. He acted as though he wanted to go farther, but they urged him, Stay with us, because it is getting toward evening and the day is almost done. So he went in to stay with them. When he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. At this point, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Then he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven And those with them gathered together and saying, The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. Well, good morning. So glad you've joined us today. This is a remarkable story that has profound implications for all of us. It begins with two people on a journey. Because life is a journey, and we all walk the same road. We're all headed to the same place, which we try not to think about. But then something happens, and we become acutely aware, aware of the... uh, So naturally, we get philosophical and reflective, and we start asking, where are we going? And how does this end? And in those moments, our fast-paced, sort of distractive lives slow down and we feel the weight of every step or sometimes it just stops us dead in our tracks and that's the moment 
that we need something beyond this world to join us on this journey. We need a real personal encounter with God. And this is the story uh, of how right now, today, wherever you are, you can have that. A relationship with the living Christ and never walk alone again. Go from confusion and dread to clarity and hope. In a matter of moments, it can all turn around, literally. Uh, This story tells us how. And it does it by using two very simple, everyday settings. One of them is the road. Okay, this sort of depicts the journey toward faith. And then there is the home, uh, the table, maybe more specifically, and what it means to find faith. Verse 35, the very end of the story, you read this as they describe the entire event. What happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. The road and the table. Now each one represents an essential part of how we come to know God. If you look at verse 13, it says the two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they left Jerusalem. Uh, They're heading to their home, Emmaus. And we don't know exactly uh, where Emmaus is. We don't know where it's located. Uh, And rather than give us any detail, all that matters is that it's seven miles from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was their spiritual homeland. It represented hope, salvation, and, and community, life with God. Emmaus is the loss of hope. It's where you go when all hope is lost. It's kind of the road to nowhere. And there's no ruins that exist so that we could excavate it or find it. We can't be sure where it is. The point is, it could be anywhere. Uh, You say, how did they get here? Well, they, they tell in the story what happened. They were really close to Jesus. Turns out they ran pretty close with the disciples. So they heard all of Jesus' teachings. They, they witnessed his miracles. They thought he was the Messiah. Then they watched him get falsely accused, betrayed, and murdered, and they were devastated. Um, they heard the testimony on the third day. They heard the testimony of the, woman, of the women and Peter uh, about an empty tomb, but no one had seen him yet. And so all of that was more than they could take. That was it. That's the moment they lost hope and they left and they just hit the road, and that's the road they're on. And if, there, if there's no reg- resurrection, then death is the end. They're crushed and they're traumatized. Uh, and it's almost too much for them, as you see in the story. Uh, it's not certain uh, if this couple was married or not. Um, I kind of think they are, and I, I won't validate for you uh, all of that today, but... Uh, If you look at how they're talking to each other, they're kind of arguing, they're bickering. Um, Verse 14 and 15 tell you that they're talking and they're debating. And the language is pretty harsh. It's emotional. Um, They're a little snippy and obstinate. Uh, Maybe you've been on some walks and had some talks like that yourself here recently. You know, when you have stressful circumstances, difficult a reality to face. You, you, you have hard conversations. 
Now, these are kinds of conversations, you know, death and the end that we avoid if we can. Um, Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, says right at the outset, the idea of death, the fear of it, it haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny of man. It's like he's basically saying everything we do is designed to keep our minds off it. But even if you do, for the most part, avoid thinking about it, every now and then the events of life sort of bring it to the forefront and the center. They sort of jolt us into reality. Julian Barnes has a book called Nothing to be Frightened of, where he refers to these moments as wake-up calls to mortality. He's not a believer, uh, but the book is about uh, how he wrestles with these kind of times in life. When they, and this is how he describes it. It's really cool. The wake-up call to mortality sounds a bit like a hotel service. He says it's like being in an unfamiliar hotel room where the alarm clock has been left on the previous occupant's setting, and at some ungodly hour, you are suddenly pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. You know, our present world circumstances have sort of jarred us out of a slumber as well. And if you felt that, it's okay. You're just human. And it may very well be the most honest you've been in a long while. Because when you think about death being the end, if that's the end, that means nothing else matters. That means the beginning didn't matter, the, your, your origin didn't matter, and that means nothing in between matters either. And you can try to make this life matter. You can try to make it uh, meaningful. But that's just being dishonest. And Becker says uh, it's, it's like playing mind games and mind tricks. They're just lies. You know, at the end of his life, Steve Jobs, who was the co-founder and chairman of Apple, came to grips with this uh, reality um, before he died. His, his biographer, Walter Isaacson, recalls a conversation that they had in a garden um, in his last days. And he said this, I'd like to think something survives after you die. Um, now, listen, this is coming from somebody who claims that all his life he didn't even think about an afterlife. He didn't believe in an afterlife. But he actually goes on to say, there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. Now, this is, this was, so here he is sitting in this garden. He's reflecting on all his experiences, all his accomplishments, all his relationships. And now he's realizing, wow, there's no afterlife. So he, he, he knew that that meant, all of those experiences meant nothing. They were meaningless. But they did mean something. Listen, the only way to live like it all matters is to believe in the resurrection. Now let's go back to our couple because at this moment they have sort of like Steve Jobs been mugged by mortality as we heard last week. This emotional conversation and right in the middle of it Jesus slips up. Verse 15. He walks up beside them and he walks with them he just steps right into their confusion right into their stress and despair and now notice he doesn't assault them he doesn't barge in mortality will mug you 
Jesus, immortality, comes, a song, comes alongside us naturally and gently like a fellow traveler. Don't be thrown off by this. It's possible. It's likely that he's there and you don't see it. Maybe because you're waiting for some grand entrance. This is how God comes to us. He'll enter your thoughts. There'll be a person that orients you to God. There'll be some difficulty in your life. But you sense something pulling you toward him. Listen, I remember. uh, He was in my life long before I recognized it. But they don't see it. Verse 16, they did not recognize that it was him. And so now the drama begins. Will they recognize him? And how will they recognize him? So Jesus asks them, you know, what's going on? And right now they're stressed and they're anxious and they're skeptical and their skepticism has blinded them and they sort of stop in their tracks. You look at verse 17 when Jesus says, uh, what, are, what are you guys discussing? And he says, they stood still and looked sad. They just stop dead in their tracks. They get a little arrogant and a little overconfident because that's what stress and skepticism will do. And Jesus takes it because they say, I mean, Cleopas, one of them answers, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? It's, it's kind of sarcastic. But Jesus takes it because he understands their angst. But they stop dead in their tracks, which I think Luke does on purpose just nicely explains because he wants everyone reading the text to stop. Either Jesus is as clueless as they think he is or he's actually the Christ. He's the Messiah. Those are the only two categories it could be because nobody in the area would not know what's going on. And so now their journey begins. Their journey toward faith begins. Whatever it takes to believe, we learn here, it's more than visual because they're staring at him and they don't see it. Jesus knows this and he provides for them the process that it takes to come to faith. In verse 25, he says, So he said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, he says, Foolish and slow of heart to believe. So foolishness is sort of a mental word. It uh, has to do with being ignorant. It's a mind thing. It's, it's thinking, and that's what the road is. All right? Uh, the slow of heart is more the table. These are the two ele- everyday elements that are broken down spiritually for us. On the one hand, Jesus is saying, don't be foolish. Think. I want you to think. This is the rational side of faith. Uh, the intellectual side. Jesus challenges them. To wrestle with the facts. In other words, he's not skipping this step, even though he could have. In other words, he doesn't want them to just make a leap of faith. He wants them to think. On the other hand, the slow of heart means you can grasp it, but then you don't wrap your heart around it. You don't trust him. You don't give yourself up to it. You don't embrace it and you don't commit. And you need both. You need both of those in order for faith to take effect. So Jesus is going to help them think through this. He's going to help them process. So you look at verse 27, and he says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, prophets he interpreted 
all of the scriptures for them. This is a, this is a great moment. He starts right at the beginning. I have a buddy. His name's Oscar. He lives in uh, Florida. You've heard me talk about him before. Probably talk once a week. Uh, and every time I call him, he says, this is how he answers the phone. Start from the beginning. This is his way of saying, leave nothing out. He's a highly relational guy, wants to know everything. Uh, I want to hear it all. Give me the whole story. And that's kind of what Jesus does. He's going to rehearse all of history for them. He's going to help them process. It's part of what the journey is, is about. Part of the road journey is to process the truth. And he rehearses history for them. Shows them that it was God's plan all along. Tells them that the whole point of the story was Jesus. Turns out it's a story of redemption. That it was always God's plan to send his son to the cross for mankind. Uh, in verse 26, he says, wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? It turns out it was all, God was always going to give himself. It was always going to be a love story. So Jesus is saying, process this. Consider this, that God gave his son. Nobody took him. That the cross was not the end, but the fulfillment of God's plan. What you considered the worst weekend of your life was actually God's way of bringing life to you. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, is that possible? And how great would it be if that were true? That if God really isn't absent during this time, that his fingerprints are all over this, well, that would change everything. And as that starts to sink in, there's another key part to the journey of faith on the road. It's not just processing. Look at verse 28. They approached the village where they were going, and Jesus acted as though he wanted to go further. And as you're reading this, you're like, oh, wow, Jesus just expounded all this to them. They're processing. This can't be the end. I mean, they reach their destination, so you feel like, "Uh uh-oh, are they going to part now? And so the suspense builds. Jesus acts as if he's going to leave. And now the second part to the journey, pleading. So you process, and then you plead. It's, you can't leave now. That's what they're saying. The language is very strong. Uh, Verse 29, they urge him to stay. It's a forceful kind of a language. You can't leave now. We're processing, and we're we're not going to let you go. And I love the line in in verse 29 where he says, uh, the day is almost done. Don't leave. The day is almost done. It's almost as if Luke is saying, the processing isn't complete. A new day is around the corner, but we haven't arrived there yet. There's There's still more to do. And it's true. And so they plead with him. Listen, at this point, they're still not certain who Jesus is. Uh, but they know they don't want him to leave. So four times in the next four verses, you're going to see this phrase, stay with us, stay with us. And that's their way of saying knowing and processing is not enough. You know, sometimes you sense God's presence before you can articulate it, before you understand that it's really him. And again, Jesus is not presumptuous. He's not forceful. He'll stay if you invite him. So after you process, there's got to be a plea. You got to plead. And then you notice he stays. He does stay. 
And so now we enter the sort of the second phase of this journey. They're processing and then they're pleading and now they enter, his, they enter the home. They come to the table. They're off the road. Processing and pleading are done. And now there's a shift uh, for this very intimate setting. It's such a wonderful place in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke where he talks about all the meals people have with Jesus and there's nothing more incredible in the world than to have a meal with Jesus. It's a powerful picture of the personal and relational side of Christ. In verse 30, they sit down at the table and this is how it reads. And when he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. All of a sudden, Jesus becomes the host. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but in that culture of hospitality, it would be very unheard of, actually culturally offensive, for the guest to take the role of the host. Even today, if you had guests over to your home, you have, uh, which you wouldn't today, but I mean, if you did, um, you wouldn't let them take over. You wouldn't let them serve you. It wouldn't even come into anyone's mind. And so the fact that Jesus does that means that once you invite him in, he takes over. And now two more things happen at the table. He provides and he ignites. So he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. Now you'll recall Jesus, on two memorable occasions, uh, has already done this. And you'll recall them. Luke, Luke emphasizes them. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 and then the Last Supper. And here's the point. What Jesus is doing for them now, after the resurrection, is what he did while he was with them physically. Jesus is saying, it's still me. I still perform miracles I can still use something inadequate. I can still use something ludicrous like a cross to nourish your soul. That's the 5,000 miracle side. Not only that, at the Lord's Supper, he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Jesus is saying right here in this moment, I am the broken bread. I am the salvation. And they received it. They received it and they took it. And this is an incredibly important moment. Once you're at the table, once you're off the road, you've processed and you've pleaded. Now you're sitting at the table and Jesus becomes the host and he hands you the bread and you realize salvation is not something you could have earned. It's something he has to take over and provide for you. The heart part is the hard part because you've got to be humble. You got to embrace, you got to commit, you got to digest, you got to receive. I remember when I gave my life to Christ, I had processed plenty, it took an entire summer. I had even memorized verses. But at some moment, I had to get down on my knees and take what He was offering, which in this case was salvation. And it was something I could not provide for myself. And in that moment, you know what happens? The stranger becomes known, the guest becomes the host. And the crucified Savior becomes the risen Lord. And it's not over. It's not over. Not only does he provide what your soul needs, in this moment, 
he vanishes. You see verse 31 where he just vanishes after that. As soon as they recognize him, which is right in that moment, they don't recognize him until they get to the table. Jesus vanishes. Now, it looks at first a little bit like social distancing, but that's not it at all. It's actually physical distancing. It's Jesus' way of saying, I'm not here physically, but I am here. I'm still with you. I'm risen. And even though you won't see me, you can know me. You can know me as intimately as if I was here. I will relate to you differently, yes. But every bit is real and even more real than when I was here. And you're like, well, what does that look like? Once I receive it, what does that look like? And verse 32 describes it. They said, did not our hearts burn within us? And here's what you see. God goes to the inside, changes your heart, changes you on the inside. What he does is he ignites your heart. After he provides the salvation you need, he ignites your heart. You know, fire is always associated with God's presence in Scripture. He is present inside us. We draw our life and our energy from his life. He speaks He relates to us internally. His truth and character are seared into us. They purify and transform us. We're filled with hope as his eternal being fills us. And we sense that death is overcome. And that death is not the end. It's been defeated. The physical material world uh, is not all there is. And it's no longer a barrier to God. Death cannot separate us from him anymore. It changes everything. And you notice in verse 33, it says, So they got up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem together, where they had begun. The return to Jerusalem is literally immediate. They don't wait. They don't sleep the night off and take the, you know, two to three hour walk back. They don't wait till it's light. They don't do anything. They just immediately take off. This is the picture of immediate turnaround, uh, radical turnaround. And the only thing that could do that is the resurrection. Do you see that? Only the resurrected Christ could have made that happen. Now listen, they still probably had questions, but the resurrection makes sense of everything else in your life. Uh, There's still unknowns. But if he's risen, then I'm confident that there's an answer for those things. And so their life is completely started over. Um, So let me ask you, do you sense that right now? Do you sense him in your life? Uh, No matter where you are on the journey, he's there. Perhaps he's come again through your thoughts a sense of longing for him, or there's some person in your life who keeps pulling you toward God, or your circumstances, uh, your troubles are forcing you to be honest about a reality. Either way, the resurrected Christ has come alongside of you in some way, and I'm I'm here to tell you, don't let him go by. Invite him in. Plead for him to come in. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. 
That's the table. That's the intimate setting of the table where Christ offers you his own body as a sacrifice. Now, will you let him in? Right there into your home. There's no better place. Right into your private space. God wants to fill your whole life. And if that's the case, if you want that, I would like you to consider right now praying this prayer with me. It goes like this. I'm sorry, Lord. I've been blind, stubborn, but I know you're there and I want you in my life. Please give me what you gave these two travelers. I want the forgiveness you made possible by dying on the cross. Set me aflame on the inside. I want your presence to transform and purify me. Replace my guilt and fear with peace and hope. Amen. Now, listen closely. If you did that, if you prayed that, then there is a way to let us know. Uh, You probably see it on the screen. Please do it. Um, Because remember, in verse 33, after they have this turnaround, you know, after they process and they plead and then God provides for them and it ignites their heart. You know what happens first? Look at verse 33. They found the 11 and those with them gathered. The first thing they did was reach out to other people. It's one of the first instincts is community, to find others who share that heart. So I'm challenging you to reach out and tell us, connect with us. God's presence is felt significantly when we're with others. In other words, the rest of the journey of your life, you're not to walk alone. You can have that today. Father, how grateful we are that you sacrificed your life for us and powerfully overcame the grave. So we no longer live with the fear of death, But now, most assuredly, we have the hope that we will spend eternity with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.